Let's read these verses together. Why don't you stand up and we're going to read them. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. Let's read that little part again. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem, and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. Okay, why don't you just uh, have a seat? And one of the things that... um, Well, it's really not one of the things. I just... I just love knowing knowing what God's really like. The nature, the nature of God. And you see so much, there's so much revealed in the story of the birth of Jesus. And um, I want us to look at that, but let's go to this next image. I want you to see the greatness of God. That's our galaxy, and if you don't know where you are, you are right there. You are here. And it's really hard to fathom how big the galaxy is, how big the universe is. This is just, um, this is just our galaxy. And the idea will come right on in. Ladies, so good to see you here. And your husband's apologizing, but he doesn't need to. It's awesome. Um, It's hard to imagine how vast the universe is. And I believe it's in Colossians. The Bible plainly tells us that the one born in Bethlehem created everything. It says, by him all things were created. And, and there's, there's such a breadth of revelation there. I mean, that, that staggers the imagination that the one we call Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, is the one who created everything. Okay, let's look at this next slide. This is amazing. That's a slice of the universe just a small little slice to three billion light years away. Now, a light year is the distance light will travel at 186,000 miles per second in a year. That's way out there. And people understand, scientists understand, there are more stars than grains of sand on every beach in the world. Our sun is a star. There are more of those than grains of sand on the seashore. And it brings to to mind the promise 
um, God gave Abram and Abraham. He said, your seed will be as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. What does that mean? If God literally fulfills that creation and humanity's barely gotten a good jump on it. Would you? Yeah, see, we really don't understand what the Lord's up to cosmically, and I don't either. I'm just saying if you're not awed and mystified by what the Bible says and about what nature shows us and about how many stars are out there, um, well, I think you should be. I think it would help you. Actually, the Lord told me one time if I would study nature, he would heal more people. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, if you saw everything I did in creation, you would believe I could heal this little thing and that little thing. But it reveals to us, I think, how um, limited our viewpoint of the bigness and the greatness and the goodness of God. And your faith is limited to that viewpoint. Come on, somebody. I could hear my head rattle, but felt like it was just one single BB in the midst of the room there. Okay. Three billion light years away. More stars and grains of the sand on every beach in the world. Let's go to the next slide. The number of superclusters. I don't even know what that is, but it's a bunch of big stuff. In the visible universe is 10 million. The number of galaxy groups in the visible universe. Now that first picture where it says you were here, that was a galaxy. The number of large galaxies in the visible universe is 350 billion. Jesus created all that. The number of dwarf galaxies in the visible universe is, these are smaller ones, 7 trillion. And the number of stars in the visible universe is 30 billion trillion. Is that incredible? And our God, through Christ Jesus, created all of that. That to, that to me is just so wonderful to think about that. I can remember as a little boy, I grew up over on Park Road here in Charlotte, and my brother and I shared a room, and I can remember looking out the window. I, I bet I was 10 years old, and I saw the stars. And for the first time in my life, this, that image, that picture, what I was looking at went from like a sheet with holes poked in it and a light bulb behind it, you know, just a flat one-dimensional thing, into the vastness of space. And my little mind, from what I learned in science, my, my little mind was wrestling with, wow, that never ends. And I got scared. I was frightened. And to me, what that really was, that was the first evidence of the fear of the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord is not, I think most people see it as he just is mad so he's going to get angry and scare you and hurt you. But it's something much more profound than that. It's this incredibly amazing, um, powerful, loving, righteous, holy person who had, has no origin. That, that to me is pretty... Who created this universe by speaking words that most scientists understand is still being created. I'm thinking, well, where's he going? Because we, we are so spatially, linearly oriented, but that traps us into too small an understanding of the greatness and the bigness and the majesty and the glory of God. And the more you think about it, it brings like this, there's, a, there's an element of, of quickening or, you know, not like 
horror movie fear, but a different kind of awe and fear that it, it just, it'll do something to you. And the Bible says it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. To know God that way is the beginning of knowing God, Jesus in the, the, the manger. Because that God out there, whatever, wherever, however, whoever, in some ways, came here. That, that to me is, that's amazing. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament show His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And so Psalm 19 says, By the heavens alone, by the creation alone, the voice of God has permeated and gone to every living being in whatever culture or society because God's first language is not English. God's first language is creation in a sense. And when you see the wonder of creation, it just makes you go, my goodness, what in the world? And so then we have this next picture, just sort of a classic um, picture of Mary and Joseph and that, that donkey that gentleman was referring to earlier and the little baby. And I've often seen this. I want to go to this next slide because some people have said that the manger was probably just um, a stone or a rock that was carved that was used for generations. And it's amazing that, that the, um, the bread of life was born in Bethlehem, which means city of bread. And that when he was born, he was laid at a place where even the animals fed. So there's just so much, so much to all this. And I just want us to look at it. Um, I'm just amazed by the universe. Have you ever, you can get on YouTube and find these little five and ten minute, even hour movies about the universe. And, and some of them go from the earth and then they go out and out and out and I mean it's just it'll boggle it just boggles boggles your mind so I'm I'm amazed but and I have to say this again how many of you been to the beach lately how many of you ever been to the beach there are as many stars in the heavens as there are grains of sand on every beach in the world that's amazing. Um, here's what's even more amazing. Even though God was and is that way, he came in humility. He came in humility. Uh, Luke 2.12, we read, this will be the sign to you. Let's say that. This will be the sign to you. You will find a babe and, and let's sort of demystify or de-religiosize. You will find a babe wrapped in rags lying in a cattle feeder. Now, there are different opinions about all that. But to me, when God comes, how does he come? When he comes in his most authentic, pure, unadulterated way... How does he come? Well, he comes as a Jewish. It's amazed me how many Christians don't like Jewish people or things when their Savior is a Jew, for goodness sake. That doesn't make any sense. And the Klan, you, I don't, some of you, I grew up with the Klan saying they were Christian and then trying to kill people, black people. It's crazy. And Jews, I hated Jews, I hated blacks, I hated everybody. I said, that's not that good a religion right there. I don't know where they got that, but I don't like it. But nevertheless, he comes as a baby in an era that did not have modern conveniences. I mean, it's amazing the time, the place, the method God chose to come and how he chose to come. So he doesn't come with fanfare. He doesn't come with a parade. 
there's not this full, what if he came today and he gave like rights to his coming to, there would be Facebook and Twitter and the NFL would have Jesus jerseys and <laughs> glory be to God, touchdown goalposts. I don't know what they have, but he didn't come that way. That would be, that would not take what he wants us to have to find him. Because if you were alive the day Jesus was born, that's the only place you could find God. Where? In this little backwater um, Jewish village. And it wasn't at the Holiday Inn. It was in a stable. It's amazing. And that's what God's like. That's what he's really like. He, he condescends. I mean, if you think about the distance he had to travel, and I don't mean um, uh, geographically, but if, if you think about the distance he had to travel between who he was, Jesus is the, the pre-incarnate one, and who he became when he became a person, um, the condes- and and then not to be born in the finest, most regal and clean necessarily an awesome place, but just to simply be born like many other young Jewish children were born. And even a little bit worse because since it was a census, he couldn't even be born at home, couldn't get his midwife or however they uh, did that. But he was born traveling. It's like born on vacation. Only your hotel reservations fell through. And so you, they, well, we got this little shed out back. We'll clean that up a little bit, put you in the corner and won't, won't charge as much. So, but, so there, there weren't parades and media and any of that. If you were going to find God in those days, you would have to stoop low enough to go into that little staple. And there he was as an infant. It's just, is that not wonderful? Is anybody feeling this this morning? That To me, that's just so. And there are reasons God did that we're going to look at that, that are so potent and powerful. I've got a couple of quotes from C.S. Lewis. He wrote in the, in the last battle, in our world, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. It's amazing. He also said, God is not proud. He will have us even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him. Let me read that again. God is not proud. He will have us even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him. He's like, how many Christians met Jesus as a last resort? A lot of them. A lot of people do. A lot of people meet the Lord, get away from the Lord. Crisis comes. Everything falls apart. They come back. I don't think that's the best way to do it, and I don't think that's God's intent. I think the day is going to come where uh, people repent because they see the goodness of God manifest so greatly in different places. You know, everybody says God needs to smite America so people come running to Jesus. You smite America, a lot of those people curse God. You just don't know. But I believe the day is going to come where the goodness of God, the favor of God, is going to be so amazing in different places and pockets that people say, I know that guy. He is not that good. What's going on in his life, he can't do. There's got to be a God because I know him. I know this guy. Does that make sense? I think about um, the humility of God. So when he appears in his most pure form to, to mankind, it's in that stable in Bethlehem. Well, there's something else that I think is so important. 
It's the fact that God has always been that way. Now, someone should think this. Well, why did he get Solomon and David to build the most extravagant temple ever in the world? And he wanted to live in that. How many of you would think that would be a reasonable question? Do you know what the temple represents? You. The place he most wanted to dwell. So when you see the magnificent temple that that uh, Solomon and David built, basically, what you're really looking at is how God views people and what they become when he dwells in them. They become magnificent. Come on, you know that's good. And so it's not, well, we need to build this big temple because God's got an ego problem. You're missing the whole point. He could be born in a stable and not think twice about it. He could condescend to the people of low estate, never give it a moment's notice. And so when that temple is built, it's simply a picture of the people of God, the, the ultimate house of God, and what they become when he dwells in them. They become a magnificent, glorious, holy, beautiful, resplendent, cheerful, joyful, happy temple. Not made with hands. Oh man, that priest right there. But in Exodus 3, it says Moses was tending the flock of Jethro's father-in-law. Moses had a calling 40 years earlier, but he killed this Egyptian and he ran away. And 40 years, he was in the wilderness tending sheep. And he was 80 years old before God brought him into his ultimate purpose. That's amazing. 80 years old. So he's tending the flocks. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. How many people, if they didn't know this story, would think it would be a good idea for when God showed up to, to, to uh, save two million slaves who'd been 400 years in slavery, that the way he would appear would be as a fire in a, in a blackberry bush? Does that make any sense? No, it makes no sense whatsoever. But again, it's a picture of the humility of God. And so God is speaking to Moses out of this thorn bush in the desert, out of a fire. Some people say, oh, you know, the Lord will do some interesting things with people and I've seen people fall down and roll on the floor and laugh and get healed and cry and get healed and all sort of stuff and then I've seen it go on sometimes for weeks and months and then people find fault with it and I say have you not read the Bible do you not see I mean if you think this is strange how about the God who talks to people out of a bush how about the God is born in a in a carved out cave and this is the problem well, God is humble because men aren't. And he wants them to be. So Moses is talking to this God and he says, who are you? And God basically says, I am the I am or that I am. But he's basically saying, I'm the self-existent God. So the self-existent God is in this bush. What are you going to do with that? I love that. I love that. I love this different nature. I mean, the way God does things, it's not all pomp and circumstance and big time and important people and flashy and emails out the wazoo about what they're doing to get people to come. I'm going to tell you something. If God ever showed up like that, you wouldn't have to tell anybody. <laughs> now, this is too good, man, I'm telling you. If you think God showed up that way 15 minutes before Moses got there, there's a flea up here. I rebuke you things trying to distract me from <laughs> moving right along. If you think he 
manifested himself in that bush 15 minutes before Moses showed up, you would be wrong. That's where he lived. Well, Robin, I don't believe that. Well, that doesn't matter. As, I mean, it does matter. I'm not saying your opinion doesn't matter, but I'm saying it doesn't matter insofar as the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 33:16, as Moses is rehearsing and prophesying again over the sons of Joseph, he says, may they be blessed with the precious things of the earth and its fullness and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. That's, that's the God Moses knew, the God who dwelt. Let the blessing come on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. Dwelt in the bush. What does dwelt mean? Permanently stay, reside, or lodge. Now, before I start some kind of an argument about where God lives, let me simply say this. He always lives in a bush or in a state his nature is to reveal himself in ways like this it's not like he's still in that bush and it's burning away we we don't believe that but what it says is this is his nature this is not just some bizarre strange thing he did to confuse people when he shows up oftentimes he shows up in ways that mess with your reason mess with your logic, mess with your pride, bring you to a place that the only way you're going to benefit is by faith. Because God is, its he's not unreasonable, but he is not subject to reason. Do you understand what I'm saying? And people that have to understand it all are striking out on a trail that ends in confusion. You will never never understand God or you would be bigger than. Come on. I remember, and this is very, very peculiar, but I love this and I know it's awkward and I know, yeah, but, blah, 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 but nevertheless, um, to whom... What does it say in Isaiah 53? To whom will I give the report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, this is part of my testimony. What I'm telling you, I experienced. We had an outpouring of the Holy Spirit 25 years ago when I had this church in Pineville. And we had a, a ficus tree. And I've said this before. Somebody else needs to hear it. We had a ficus tree, and it wasn't even a real tree. It was plastic. and It was about seven feet tall. And the Holy Spirit would begin to move in our church and people were getting healed and people were getting happy and people were weeping and getting stuff out of them. And then they were getting happy and amazing, amazing things were happening. But it was very embarrassing for the most part. <laughs> and we developed a seriously bad reputation. And that never bothered me. Because I've been in church all my life and never had much fun. <laughs> and suddenly I can see pompous, arrogant people hit the deck and roll up under chairs and laugh. And I would see God sneak up on people and just, in a good way, just clobber them like with goodness and joy. And they, and there would be people. I, I had a lady storm out of the building when that was going on. And I went out in the parking lot and I said, What's wrong? And she said, you tried to make me laugh. I said, I'm sorry. It'll never happen again. <laughs> Is that a terrible reason to get mad and leave church? What did you? I should have come up here, bam, and karate chopped her or something. No, come on. Made her laugh and that was bad? Come on. People think God has no sense of humor. Humor didn't come from the devil. It couldn't have. He is. It couldn't have. God is a happy person. He is a happy. So in the church, we had a number of people that had pretty imposing jobs. One was 
um, a security chief, black belt karate guy, and black belt karate people never lose control in any situation. If, if, if uh, you woke them up in the night, they would karate chop you once and then ask you what? I mean, that's what they do. They protect people. They're always. And the other guy was um, an IBM engineer. And in the middle of one of these, and they never got touched by the Lord. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Some people get touched, you never know what's going on. It wasn't like a club you joined. Whoever does the most outrageous thing is the most holy person. That's not that way. But I look over there in the corner at the ficus tree, and both of those guys are in a pile. And so I investigate. And I asked somebody else to come over. And when they come over, they hit the deck. There was, there, God was in that ficus tree. There wasn't on fire or anything, but I'm just telling you, I'm just, believe it or not, I was there when it happened. And it's very easy to show from the scripture that the Holy Spirit will permeate natural things like Paul's aprons and buildings and rooms and oil and all kinds of things. If you read the Bible. We had this couple, he was retired Navy, and uh, from they were lived in, from Chicago, and uh, he and his wife came to the church. He got a miraculous healing from a stroke in a moment in time. He went from dragging his leg around to dancing on the bad leg in a moment in time. Bam! Well, he, his daughter and son, uh, son-in-law come to church, and the son-in-law's Roman Catholic and has never been to a Protestant church until mine. <laughs> and so <laughs> we invite him up to pray for him. Well, he's got two, his parents, grand, you know, parent in law. And so we dip the tree on him. <laughs> now, he didn't know anything about that. Well, why would people go down in the floor? I don't know. They couldn't stand up. <laughs> well, is that in the Bible? Yeah, it is. A lot, number of places. Number of places. Oh, what do you, I just think stuff happens and it's awesome and, you know. Yeah, it's awesome. But it, it will, it'll stir stuff up. Stir stuff up. Nevertheless, God does interesting things. Don't you love a God you can't control? I, I really don't, honestly. But I'm getting used to having that kind of God. It's the only one there's, that's out there. Now, when we see how small we are compared to the universe he created, then we see what he did to join in. You know, the Bible talks about Jesus. Bill Johnson said the other day... Um, it's, I don't know, I'm not quoting this exactly, but basically he was saying, isn't it amazing that common people love Jesus, but most of them don't like us? What does that mean? Well, it means that there was something about Jesus that drew people to him that weren't holy people. But the so-called holy people had something that put people off all the time. So what was it about Jesus? I think Jesus was terminally happy. I think his anointing. Now an anointing is talking about something that permeates you. Okay, let me cover the gamut. He was acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Okay, that's a description of him. But then it says he was anointed with the oil of gladness more than everyone else. So Jesus had a gladness anointing. He had a gladness countenance. He was accused of being a party man. Do you know why? He liked them. He went to them. He was accused of being a drunkard. And it wasn't because he drank wine. Most everybody drank wine. 
He was accused of being a drunkard because I believe that oil of gladness would get real intense sometimes and people would think that was what he was like, that he was somehow intoxicated. How, how, how do you get old, weathered, beat up, sunbaked fishermen to leave everything to follow you around? How do you do that? How do you do that? You have to have something attractive. Something authentically marvelous and attractive for people to want to give everything up to spend time with you and you hadn't even saved the world yet. It was the personality. It was the personality that sits on the throne that was resident in the Son of God that was joyful, that was happy, that would even rejoice when people didn't believe what he said. I can show you the verse. It says, um, Jesus preached this one message. Nobody believed him. And the Bible says he jumped up and down. He bounced up and down like a rubber ball. He rejoiced in spirit and said, Lord, this makes me so happy that nobody believes what I'm saying. You hid it from them. And I think that's awesome. He didn't even care if people believed what he was saying. Because he had a separate source of joy and gladness and a personal indwelling thing that wasn't dependent on followers or lack of followers or ministry success or lack of ministry success or any of those things. He knew who he was. He knew who his father was. And the Holy Ghost in him gave him this temperament of joy that was offensive to religious people. Come on. Now, he was born in a stable. Do you know what that shows us? It shows us so much more than just his humility. It shows us how important you are to God. He came for us. He came for us. What was that verse? Um, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. Not a condemner, a Savior. A rescuer. I mean, it, it doesn't mean you don't need to repent, but I think if you can see who he is, what he's like, why he came, what he wants for your life, you just give that stuff up and turn. The angel says this, don't be afraid. I bring you good tidings of great joy. If the gospel hasn't been to you good tidings of great joy, you've got something working on you that's just not right. It's not accurate. Which will be to all people. See, there it is. He, he, even the angels give Jesus an assignment that breaks the mold of typical Jewish perceptions of how society ought to function. Tidings of great joy which will be to all people. For there's born to you. Not just born, born to you. Born to you personally. Born to you this day in the city David. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then it says this will be the sign. And suddenly there were angels. A multitude of, I'd love to have heard that. Multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, who knows how that goes. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. That's heaven's disposition. That's heaven's attitude towards the world. Peace and goodwill. That's heaven's attitude. That was the announcement. Heaven was revealing to the world God's heart, God's viewpoint, God's intent, God's motivation. And here's the wonderful thing. It says glory to God where? In the highest on earth, 
peace, goodwill toward men. It's like this idea. When you can glorify God, when you can see the heavens, and then the heaven of heaven habitation abode concept of God is glorious. When, when that's your motive, when you can see, Oh gosh, how can I, when you can see the marvel of that, the end result, the byproduct is peace and goodwill on earth to all men. Oh man. Oh man. Oh, I like that. Okay. Was that pretty good? Now. God's condescension shows us how low he's willing to stoop to raise us up. Now, you see, and, and it gets even more amazing than that. Okay. Sands of the sea of all the earth equals the number of stars in the heavens. Creator of everything. Condescends to being a person in a stable under Poverty level conditions. That's enough. It's enough to show us what God's like, but it's not enough to save us. Then lives a perfect life for us, is crucified, is killed, became sin for us. I can't even, how, how could it, how could he become sin? I can't even fathom that, but the Bible's clear. He became sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God as we believe in him. I mean, you talk about condescension comes all the way from all of that to this. And then to suffer like a common criminal. And even beyond that, in some kind of a cosmic universal way to become sin. To, to bear in his body sin and sickness. Every, every evil thing that has hindered the entire human race. I, I just marvel. That's how much he loves you. Read this verse. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. How many of you know what a pawn shop is? How many of you know what a pawn shop is? You're broke, so you take your long morning to the pawn shop. They give you $50 and a ticket. Well, you, you make a little bit of money and you go back. And you give the pawn shop $50. What do you do for your mower? You redeem it. You buy it back. Knowing that you were not bought back. Knowing that you were not purchased. With corruptible things like silver or gold. From your aimless conduct. Received by tradition from your fathers. But with the precious blood of Christ. And so the shed blood of Jesus was the purchase price he paid to buy us out of the mess we were in into a brand new life. Now here's how... And the value of that, okay, how do you determine value? How do you determine the value of something? The value of something is determined by what a wise person would pay. And so that shows us the value. You know, people that feel like nobody and nothing, they don't get it. They don't understand their value. What's your value? Your value to God is the price he paid through this whole story I'm telling. That's your value, the blood of Jesus. It's, it's summed up in the shed blood and it goes back into the Passover lamb and there's life in the blood and when I look at the blood I'll pass over you and it's a, it has this idea of that sacrifice satisfying God for all humanity but only those that believe can enter into that forgiven state that's being freely offered. Is that making sense? What's your value do you feel valued? You need to feel valued. You need to feel loved because you are. You need to feel valued because you are highly valued. 
I don't know, maybe this is the only rock in the universe with people on it. There's, there's no evidence that's not true. I mean, who knows what is true about that. Let's say it is true. How precious would you consider yourself if you were one of those people given the privilege of living as one of the very few people whose piece of dirt orbited a star that was one of the stars that was as numerous as the sands of all the world's seashore. And there were no people anywhere else. But there was you. There you are. There we are. That's who we are. We're privileged. How? By life, first of all. You have to keep that in in perspective. Do you know what your authority comes from in the world? You're going to say something spiritual. I'm going to say something natural. It comes because you were born here. Why do demons want to possess people? They weren't born here. You are a prized possession by both heaven and hell. You are valued. Highly valued. Your value can only be determined by the price God paid. He didn't give you value. He didn't give you value when he died. He showed you the intrinsic value you have as a person. You are highly beloved. You are loved of God. You are special. Oh, come on. You are special. You are unique. I like that. Let me read this last verse and then we'll be done for the day. Oh, man. To have God, we must make room for him. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Why was he born in a stable? For there was no room. Do you, do you know what Joseph didn't do with a horde of angels? He, he didn't go to the uh, Radisson Plaza, Bethlehem, and say, kick the door down, say, do you know who we've got here in my Mary's belly? Do you know who this is? No, he doesn't kick door. He doesn't kick your door down. If you don't want him, he feels really sorry for you. But if you don't make room, he don't come. He'll come. He's coming this morning to people. If you're feeling the presence of God, if you're feeling heaven's whisper, heaven's touch, saved or unsaved, awesome. That's that little baby God healed. Let her howl. I don't care. If you are feeling any of that, that's the presence of God asking you to open the door the first time or another time. But if you don't want him, he won't stay. He's not going to kick your door down. You know what he really wants to do? He wants to win you. He doesn't want to maul you like a bear in the forest or beat you into submission or slap you sideways. He wants to win your heart. Because if you just serve him out of fear, out of some awkward sense of obedience, that does not make him happy. It may keep you out of some trouble you wouldn't get into. I'm not saying it's terrible, but that doesn't make him happy. He wants to be loved. And love is a choice. He wants you to choose him, not because it's the right thing to do, though it is, not because it's the smart thing to do, though it is, but because he wins your heart. We need to be the kind of believers in Jesus that win people's hearts, not condemn them, not beat them into submission, not condemn them. I don't want anything to do with that. I really don't want anything to do with that. I, I want to have some part of uh, the, enough of God in me that when people are around me, they're interested in me. Not because of me, but because of that part of God, that presence, that joy, that hope, that faith. But you got to make room for him.
Okie doke. I think we'll end right there. How many of you like Andy Squires? How many of you love Andy? Come on, Andy. That's a terribly loaded question. Well, why don't we stand up together? Oh, praise the Lord. Well, while Pastor Robin was preaching this morning, I just, I, I felt like this whole room was a ficus plant this morning. I just, I felt the spirit of the Lord from the moment I walked in here today when we were setting up for service today. And man, I don't know, uh, sometimes late at night when I'm putting my head on my pillow, I get attacked with fear and I get attacked with anxiety. Anybody else have that happen to them? It just something about putting your head down all of a sudden you get, I don't know, sometimes I'm consumed with it and I can't sleep. And I, I was thinking when Robin was talking about um, the, that, that season of his church where the spirit of God was coming in such a way. And I just realized, oh, I've been marked by those things in my own life. I've had that happen to me. And I know when that laughter and that joy that was... Um, uh, overtaking my life, the fear and anxiety, just, it wasn't there anymore. So I was just saying to myself while he was preaching, I want to be a person who is about the joy of the Lord more than anything else. And I don't have to manufacture it because he's so good at giving it to me. <laughs> he's so good at giving it to us, isn't he? So let's close out with just a simple prayer of asking the Lord to fill us with his joy. All right. How's that sound? Let's do that. Well, Father, we thank you for this good and hearty word that you've given us today. And you're filling and refilling our hearts, Lord. You're giving us faith when we had none. Lord, we're living by your faith, not our own. And we're partakers of your nature today. We thank you that you've called us to feast on your love day in and day out. And we just ask you right now to do a supernatural thing. And, and, and give us the joy of the Lord that truly is our strength starting today and all through this week, Father. We just want to lead, uh, follow you into those places that you're leading us, Father. We thank you for today. And all God's people said together, amen. Be blessed as you go.